the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Monday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, really whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them using our mobile app, Calvary Chapel San Antonio. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend in church, a great day yesterday. We did. Some people got saved. That's always the neat thing that happens. So um, hope that worked in your church as well. Everybody that gets saved, we're one person closer to Jesus coming back for us. Uh, Tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio are our Monday night men's, women's, and youth Bible studies all at 7 o'clock for worship. And then they scatter in different directions around the the facility here uh, for their own Bible study. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Uh, Lauren Blanton will be teaching the ladies. Uh, Ladies, you can watch that live stream at calvaryessay.com. Lauren's a wonderful Bible teacher, by the way. So uh, you can do that, or you can join us. We've always got room. And Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew will be teaching the junior high and high schoolers, respectively. Uh, Also, at 7 o'clock, you can make it sort of a family trip here to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Let me get to some questions that have been sent in while we await uh, your phone calls. Here's a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I was wondering when Psalm 106 was written. I think that it was written before the Babylonian captivity, that it was written in the time after the book of Judges. Uh, The section I read, uh, verses 39 through 48, and other reference to the nations uh, in verses 41 and 47, are in contrast to Babylon being one nation. So the reference of nations makes me think that there are many nations that harassed Israel before the the kings and before the northern and southern kingdoms. I'm not sure we know that this psalm was written by David. Um, he actually uh, quotes it or, or, or either repeats it, depending on what happened first. Uh, but when Uzzah was killed, uh, when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, David used the, 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 the opening lines of this psalm there. So we're certain that it was David's uh, authorship. 
so it was it was written. Uh, you're right after Judges when the people wanted a king, and way before the Babylonian captivity, because it happened under Israel's second king, King David, uh, and that much is pretty clear. I don't think there's any prophetic value going down the corridor of time and space in this particular psalm. Uh, I think the nations is just a reference to uh, the countries around them. You know, David uh, was um, um, pursued by or at war with many other nations around him during his time. So uh, in this particular case, uh, you're right. It was written uh, after the time of Judges, after King Saul's reign, and then it uh, was written um, literally hundreds of years uh, before the uh, Babylonian captivity. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a question about Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells the parable of the shrewd manager and how we handled um, his relationship with others. What do you think Christ means with that parable? And what do you think Luke 16:9 means for believers? Thank you. Anonymous, there's always questions about this one because it sounds as though uh, Jesus is commending the behavior of the shrewd manager, and that's not what he's doing at all. Um, he says in Luke 16:9, I'll read the passage that uh, this person asked about. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. What he's saying in this parable is very simple. He's saying, look, even unbelievers are more concerned about their future than many professing believers. He was talking, of course, to religious Jews. And he was saying uh, in this parable that at least this shrewd manager, again, he's not commending uh, the dishonesty, he's not commending anything. We know that because Jesus certainly couldn't be uh, a partner in any of that. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, uh, you Jews ought to know the time of my coming. And at least this guy is looking down the road. Remember, he stole from his his, uh, boss, uh, and when he knew he was going to have to give account of his stewardship, uh, he he went to the people that he cheated for and said, okay, now take care of me. I did this for you. You do this for me. And so when Jesus is saying, at least he's concerned about his future. The Jews that Jesus was ministering to when he was declaring this parable, uh, the Jews weren't interested in their future. They weren't looking beyond the moment. And Jesus says, at least this shrewd or wise manager, depending on which translation you're using, at least this person was interested in looking down the road, securing their eternal future. Here's what he's saying to Christians, Anonymous. Uh, He's saying that we need to be looking for his return. We need to be prepared. We need to be looking at the signs and and the the seasons around us, uh, living our lives uh, with eternity in mind instead of in uh, uh, being focused on or in the time that we live in. And I think this is a very important lesson for many of us to learn because we're so focused on what we have now or what we don't have now that many, many Christians have just stopped looking altogether toward that moment when we're going to be with Jesus. So uh, he's saying... Um, If you've got worldly wealth, use it, but use it in the light of me coming. Be concerned about what happens when this life is over. One of the things Jesus said, as everybody knows the verse uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. And, And Jesus saying, that's the eternal perspective. The Apostle Paul put it this way. Set your minds and your hearts on things above. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Setting our mind on things above, that's a decision that we make. Setting our hearts, that's a place of affection. Setting our affections on things above rather than the things of this world. So that's all he's talking about. And I want to repeat one last time that he is not commending the behavior of the dishonest manager. Uh, He's simply saying at least this guy is shrewd enough to take care of his future, to secure his future. And the religious leaders that Jesus was uh, talking to here, the religious leaders, he's saying, you're not even concerned. You're concerned about now. You want to live comfortably. Um, 
but but you're not afraid of God. And I think that would be a, a great sort of subtitle for this parable, um, having lost the fear of God. So good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Joe Ellen. Hello, Pastor Ron. This is just a question uh, of curiosity. Do you plan to have all of your sermon notes uploaded to your website one day? I think I remember you saying that Leviticus was the last book you needed to teach on, and you have, uh, as I am in Leviticus in my personal study, I went looking for it in your archives. Didn't find your sermon notes there, but did find it uploaded in your current and recent section. Uh, I think I think we always put it with the recent studies. I just finished Leviticus uh, a week or so ago. And so, um, no, it was maybe three weeks ago. But um, um, the, the, the notes should be there now. And I'll make a mental note here to check and make sure why they're not there in that. And then she says, so thankful. Thank you, Joellen, for appreciating it. Um, then she says this, but I noticed there are uh, several books not up de- uploaded, seven Old Testament books, and I think only Jude missing from the New Testament. I'm curious if we will one day see those sermon notes. I run to them when I'm confused by something I'm reading as I make my way through the Bible. Uh, I'm in Leviticus, Psalms, and Mark now. Thank you for making them available. I recommend them all the time. Joellen, I'm so grateful that they're helpful to you. Now, um, I've done Jude, and and um, it must have been before we were putting things on the radio uh, and, and doing all the uploading. Some of the books, like Psalms, for example, uh, I've I've taught Psalms already, uh, but it was it was before we were even recording our our um, our, our messages. Uh, so there are some that will not get on there. I, I'm I'm getting pretty old. I don't know that I'll have the time to ever go through the Psalms again. Uh, I, I was mistaken about Leviticus being the last one. I always was teasing, saying that's going to be my last one. Uh, and I got through Leviticus, but uh, I had almost, and I just finished almost. Those sermon notes ought to be on there as well. Uh, and we still have Obadiah to do, uh, and First and Second Chronicles. So those are the Old Testament books that I haven't done yet. And I've done all the New Testament books, and many of them um, two and three times. So um, uh, we'll do the best we can. But I'm probably not going to get Psalms on there again. I'm just getting too old for it. Going through the Psalms, uh, the way I teach would be probably a three-year process. And um, so uh, just if the Lord leads, I'll do that. But I I don't, uh, it it just doesn't seem practical at this point. Uh, So we're trying to get everything in there. I'm grateful for uh, anybody that gets any help from my notes, Uh, my notes, uh, they're my preaching notes. uh, And there's a lot of emphasis on practical application in them. So I just hope they continue to help. So Joanne, we'll do the best we can. But thank you for the heads up on the Leviticus not being in the uh, archive yet. But we'll try to get that done. I'll make sure. You know, I remember when people started asking me to, to uh, uh, here at church, it was just people on the staff, um, Pastor Ron, can we have your notes and let's put them on the website. And I thought, nobody is ever going to want to read my notes. It's my own commentary. I write it as I prepare for the Bible studies. And um, I just thought, who would ever want to read my my commentary? And And yet there's lots of people that gets a lot of traffic on our website. So I'm just grateful that they can be of help. Here is a question. This one is from Frank H. Pastor Ron, I heard your answer about the transcription error. Um, I understand that. Now, we had a a question last week about the difference between a king being 42 and 22. And uh, it's clear that he's 22, but but Chronicles had it uh, um, in error, a transcribal error, uh, and said 42. And I tried to clear that up. And then he says, if that's true, how can we Christians say the Bible is inerrant and infallible? I know they are, and I know it to be true, but how can they be if there's this error? Is it because man made the error and not God? If that's the case, uh, can God not protect his word? I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I don't think you are, so don't worry about it, Frank. Uh, But I'm trying to think of the things people can argue and want to be ready to give an answer. Uh, Frank, here's the answer, and I think it's it's that most people really don't understand inerrancy, uh, that the Bible is inerrant 
means that the original autographs or the original manuscripts, they were perfect and they were without error. But remember, our Bible comes from uh, pieces of those manuscripts put together, thousands and thousands of them. Uh, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, uh, which which validates uh, the Old Testament in a word-for-word fashion. The original autographs were inerrant, infallible, without error or contradiction. The copies that we have and the transcriptions that we have, um, there are a few errors in there. And I think somebody who is really interested in finding out what the answer is uh, to those errors, or which is correct, like the, the difference between 22 and 42 between Kings and Chronicles, uh, all it takes is just a little bit of detective work. Uh, so we can say that our Bible is infallible, without error, and the translations or the transcripts that we have um, that that come from those original autographs, uh, those translations uh, will occasionally have an error. And none of the errors do any damage to the text or to the meaning of the text. And usually they're describable errors. And I said this the other day, Frank, uh, especially with the uh, Old Testament and Numbers. Some of the Hebrew characters are really, really, really similar. And you can imagine looking at a a manuscript that's uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years old, um, could make that difficult. So we have to have room for human error. At the same time, we can have complete confidence. And when people... You know, they try to use some of those things as a gotcha. They're obvious contradictions in the Bible. Well, they don't understand. And there's plenty of information out there uh, about the autographs and how we got our translations and why we can depend on them. Frank, let me suggest one to you. You've written before, and you're a smart guy, and and you like kind of digging in. So let me recommend uh, Josh McDowell's The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, it's a very scholarly approach. It's not easy reading at all. But there is an entire section on uh, the Bible, how we got it, the canon of Scripture, and and uh, the manuscript evidence uh, that we have for its veracity. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Robert on line one from Spicewood. Spicewood is near Marble Falls. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hey, uh, I was just... Curious if it's the show that precedes you on the radio, uh, Eric Metaxas, and this letter to the American church. If you've seen that movie, read his book, do you have any thoughts on this whole we need to be more involved in politics uh, side of movement and evangelicalism? Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts on it, Robert. (laughs) I I don't want to give opinions. Just let me give you my share my heart with you a little bit. Um, um, I don't find Eric Metaxas to be always credible. Um, he's he's changed his approach many times. It's it, he's a radio personality. He is an author, good guy, and I'm sure a believer. But um, he he's just kind of shifted with the opinions, and uh, I find that often is the case with um, um, media personalities. Um, I haven't seen the movie. Won't see the movie. I've heard every argument for the church being involved in politics. And I think what happens is we've got people who uh, who don't really want to trust the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics, Robert. If you've listened to this program, uh, I've said, I thought many, many times that, that it would be a wonderful thing if really born-again Christians who simply would not compromise their faith wouldn't get swept up in the politics. If they would run for offices, then we could make an impact. The problem is that all of our candidates, even those who say they are Christians, are compromised. And we shouldn't be a part of that compromise. So the idea, and and this is where we just lost it. Now, I I want to precede what I'm going to say here, Robert, by saying I am a conservative person. If I have the choice of voting for um, a Republican candidate who is going to to take a biblical or, or a position that is closer to a biblical standard than a Democrat, I'm going to do that. I don't see how Christians can vote for somebody that is going to continue the merciless slaughter of the unborn. I don't see how a Christian can vote for somebody who is going to give the the government's approval 
um, to uh, these aberrant lifestyles. I don't understand it. The, 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 the tide of evil, the absolute lawlessness, the, 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 the demolition of our national security uh, with what's been done at the border. I don't know how anybody can support that. Somebody that says they're a Christian. On the other hand, we look at the candidates that we're going to have to vote for if we choose one over the other. Uh, and, and there is just not a candidate that, that demonstrates Christian character. And we think that all we have to do, and this is the problem with with uh, churches that have a political viewpoint, and I've got some dear friends whose churches have gone almost completely all political. These guys get really popular really quick. Their churches get packed. Tons and tons of money come in. But here's what they're not doing, Robert. They're not preparing Christians to live in a world that is going to get increasingly worse. All we have to do is look at the Bible. Second Timothy in particular, things are going to get worse in the end. Mark this, Timothy, in the last days, there will be perilous times, the King James says. And it goes on to describe the, the world that we live in now. Things aren't going to get better. There's a lying spirit. The, 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 the enemy is the one who's pulling all of the strings. And the hope, the, the idea that we can somehow usher in the kingdom of God with a Republican candidate is absolute nonsense, and it gives false hope. But the biggest damage it's done is that people are not prepared. Let me give you another example, Robert. Uh, When Donald Trump lost the last election, uh, two friends of mine who um, gave their churches over to politics, and I mean literally gave their churches over to politics, when the election was over, What they had was an angry, hopeless, frustrated, even bitter group of Christians sitting in their churches week after week complaining about everything. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says that God put us where we are, the the, the exact place, in the exact time, because this is where he's always designed for us to be. And our job is to go out and represent Jesus Christ. And the only way we can do that is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You're not equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We're not equipping the saints for the work of ministry if we're not teaching the Bible. Now, I make comment on issues all the time. I make comments on righteousness, on on uh, unrighteousness. Uh, I am... As clear as I can be about calling sin, sin, Uh, this is evil, this is good. Uh, We need to be those men and women who are doing good. But you see, if our hope is in earthly things and the political system is an earthly thing, if that's our hope, then we're without hope. And Robert, it is a horrible, horrible um, situation to find yourselves in. We Christians have the hope of Jesus Christ, not just for now, to sustain us through this difficult time, but through the rest. Should we vote? Yes, we should vote. Should we vote for the candidate whose position is closest to a biblical standard? Yes, we should. But on the other hand, the case can be made for the candidates that we are championing uh, because they are ungodly people living ungodly compromised lives and how is it that we could possibly expect that those people could lead us into an era of righteousness you can't do it with the law jesus wants to change hearts our job is to go out and win people to christ in these last days robert jesus is coming soon and that needs to be our focus. Paul writes that the weapons we fight with are not worldly or carnal weapons, but they're supernatural weapons. And we're so focused, so many of us, on politics and which candidate is going to win. And boy, then everything will be better. Um, I say this as a man who wants a conservative candidate to win the presidency, to win the Senate, and to win the House of Representatives, and to be in charge of the local governments. However, none of those people will ever, ever lead us to the kingdom of God. Churches, pastors, Christians, our job is to share Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. That's the only hope that will never disappoint. 
Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. We're inside two minutes now. Let's see if I have a really quick question. Um, Seth says, uh, Pastor Ron, what would you say to someone who believes that if they do their best to live good, godly lives, that's enough for God and they will go to heaven? Uh, what I would say to them, Seth, is good luck. I tell them Romans 3, for all of sin and continually fall short of the glory of God. And it's in the current, the active present tense, so it's continue to continually fall short of the glory of God continually. So that's what I would say. Good luck. We'll see how that works out for you. If that was true, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. It's impossible for us to live good, godly lives. Our standard isn't high enough. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, is what Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says. And that's Jesus speaking. None of us can be that good. So one sin, any and all sin, separates us from God. And the only answer to that sin is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus told a good man, a religious man, that you must be born again. And he said it twice. Same conversation, he said it twice. So, Seth, that's what I would say to him. Believe me, inside, instinctively, they know. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show on uh, this Monday, this warm, beautiful Monday. May the Lord bless you. 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half hour of our Monday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, I have a sister who wants to be referred to as a male. Do I have to use her preferred pronouns? The answer is no. Uh, nobody can make you lie. Uh, we, we need to understand that. You know, we, we want to be so sensitive to people. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But by allowing uh, your sister to pretend that she is a man uh, is not loving her. Now, we never should be belligerent. Uh, it's just as simple as saying, look, um, what you feel like doesn't change what you are. And so I'm not going to call you um, by a feminine pronoun. I'm simply not going to do it. Now, it, my, my model here, Anonymous, is I'll call anybody what they want. If I have a man comes in and says, my name is Alice, I'll say, well, hello, Alice. How are you? But if uh, that man wants me to call him or refer to him as a woman, I'm, I'm not going to do that because that would be dishonest. So just explain. Um, I'm a Christian. Uh, this is what the Bible teaches. You know what I believe. I ask you to be as sensitive to my wants and desires as you want me to be to yours. Uh, and I simply will not lie. And to call you by a feminine pronoun, uh, that would be a lie. I love you. I, I hope you get saved. But uh, I'm not going to call a man a woman or a woman a man. And that's what we're doing with the pronouns. Thank you very much, Anonymous. Let's go to Andrew on line one. Andrew, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Awesome. Uh, thanks. I just had a quick question. Um, I, this is just, I guess, your opinion. But I'm kind of struggling in regards to understanding when Jesus said that, you know, it seems like what the road to hell is wide and many follow it. But I guess the path to life is very few, you know, like through the narrow gate, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just like, is that, is he saying that in regards to salvation, that most people that we know will likely go to hell and that very few people go to heaven? Andrew, that's exactly what he's saying. And it's not an opinion. That's just the point of the parable. What he's saying is that the, the world that we live in. Um, uh, is filled with people who are going to who who are going to or who have already rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and when we understand that that Jesus alone is the answer for sin, 
when all sin separates us from God, then necessarily uh, anybody whose sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus and we receive uh, that gift by faith, or well, then we're going to spend forever separated from God. That's what we call hell. And in Jesus' parable, what he's saying is, is this, uh, there's two roads we get to choose. And I don't think it means it's restricted. It's not, it's not narrow in the sense that it's restricted and it's hard to find. You know, if you go to GPS and have a brand new address out in the country somewhere, they may have a hard time getting you to the location. That's not what Jesus is saying. The roads are equally accessible. But what he's saying is one road, the road to, to condemnation, is a road that, that you look around, that's the road everybody's taking. The other road, where there's no traffic jams, that's because it is a narrow road. There's no other way. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, and and the people that are on the road, the narrow road, they're the ones who said yes, but the many, many who said uh, no, well, they're on the other road. So does that answer your question, Andrew? Yeah, and still, the salvation, too, not works-based, correct? Can you you repeat that statement? Oh, yeah. So for salvation, like, I guess that's, it's still not works-based, correct? Like, it's not, it's not something that we could earn, right? It's just, like, it's just our belief in Him. And then when we believe, then, and then we just, we start trying to live the way He wants us to live in accordance with His Word. But, yeah, um, I don't, I don't think there's anything that works. There's nothing about works in this. What he's saying is that our the faith, we're saved by grace through faith. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we have to come to him on his terms. And and a lot of people, and I said this in, in uh, to questions last week repeatedly, uh, people don't want to stop sinning. And so they rationalize that I'm okay or I'm a good person. Well, I'm doing the best I can. I'm not really hurting anybody. And then they live the way they want to live and they have this hope that they're going to go to heaven. And Jesus said, no, that's not possible. But it is true that that's the road that most people are taking. So this isn't anything at all about works. Um, you're right when you said that when we believe in him, I'm sorry, when we believe in him, um, then we change and we start living uh, more godly lives. But it's not because we are trying to get saved. It's because we already are saved. Jesus actually said, Andrew, if you love me, you will obey me. And obedience is the reason that most people don't take the narrow road. They want to live their way. They don't want to stop sinning. And that's the only reason people spend eternity separated from God uh, because he said, you've got to come to me, you've got to repent of your sins, uh, wash and be clean, we're told. And if we don't do that, receive him by faith, costs us nothing, but we have to come to him in his terms. We can come the way we are. Uh, I gave my testimony yesterday at church. Believe me, there's probably nobody in this listening audience who sinned as badly as I have. However, Jesus washed away all those sins. And now my sins are as far from me as east is from west, covered by the blood of Jesus. And that day when I took the the, the narrow road, um, I've been walking with Jesus on that road ever since. So that's what it's talking about, uh, Andrew. It's not talking about works at all. Works will result from being saved and the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart changing you, transforming you. But um, we're saved simply by coming to Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin and saying, I believe that you are the Son of God, God the Son. I believe that you died, that you didn't stay dead, that you rose again. And I ask you to come in and be the Lord of my life. I'm going to put you in charge. That's what happens when we're born again. That's when we actually get on that narrow road. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate the call very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Boy, this is another political one. With the numbers of mass shootings we've experienced, what is the Christian response to gun control? Anonymous, um, guns don't kill anybody. Now, I I don't like cliches. You hear, well, it's people that kill people. Um, We've lost. We've lost the battle for righteousness in this country. A gun is an inanimate object. We have been given in this country the right to keep and bear arms. Um, You know, it's always frustrating to me that 
um, when people start uh, talking about we got to have gun control, we got to do this, you know, the the problem with that is uh, nobody ever says uh, the problem is these these young people that are being raised in a godless environment, these young people that have no supervision or discipline, these young people who have not been exposed to God or or God forbid to prayer because we've kicked Jesus Christ out of the schools. Um, that's the problem. And and it doesn't matter whether it's a young criminal or an old criminal. Um, the, the mass shootings, and typically they're done by young males, um, the mass shootings, they're going to continue. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether or not we outlaw a certain type of weapon. You know, what's interesting to me is that in the most liberal gun-controlled states and cities in this country, the murder rates by gun are the highest. So the issue is not guns. Now, let me say something to everybody who's saying, oh, these right-wing fundamentalists. I'm not a gun person. Not at all. I had a gun once. Uh, uh, a man that I work for gave me a, a 45 Magnum 45 or something. Um, just gave it to me and said, let's go out and shoot. I went out and shot it once. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And uh, so uh, Paul actually found the gun in the closet and made sure that we got rid of it. So I don't have gun. I, I don't have gun control. I, I do have gun control, rather, in my own home. But um, I, I'm not a gun person, and yet to blame the gun makes no sense. I don't understand why um, they don't blame alcohol when drunk drivers kill people. It's every bit as tragic, and it happens a lot more frequently. Um, we've got a fentanyl crisis. Thousands of young people are being murdered through fentanyl. And nobody says the problem, these kids taking drugs and the fentanyl that we're allowing in. It's just this issue with guns. It's easier to blame the gun, the inanimate object, than it is to blame the condition of the world that we live in. The moment we start admitting that, you know what, our people are lost they're godless. This is what godless people do. The minute we admit that, then we have to make sweeping changes and people aren't willing to stop sinning. I keep saying that, but people are not willing to stop sinning. So it's easier to blame the inanimate object. So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Jimmy says, how did the devil become the god of this world? Well, Jimmy, it was a transaction. Uh, you know, God gave Adam dominion over the world. Um, over the animals, over the over creation, um, Adam was in control, and when he sinned, he forfeited control. The serpent, that snake, the devil, the serpent, God control, and he's been the little G God of the world, the Prince of the Air. He's been the one that's stirring the pot. Now we need to always remember that God has him on a leash, but he is God's servant to tempt people and we allow him to be really, really successful. So that's how he became in control of this world. Um, fortunately, you can read the book of Revelation and Jesus comes and gets the scroll, that's the title lead to the earth, and, and resumes ownership of it. John says, I was beside myself because no one was found worthy to take the scroll and Jesus said here I come lion of the tribe of Judah and he took the scroll and then he goes about in the book of Revelation of gaining it back so Jesus is the real big G God of this world uh, but he's just not on the throne here yet that day is coming in the future thank you Jimmy wouldn't place be better if Adam would have said, no, I'm not going to do this. Paul says, Pastor Ron, our woke world is infuriating to me. How can I keep from getting so angry? Um, Paul, for me, now, um, um, th th this world is crazy. Um, the things that we believe, the, the decisions that people make, um, it's insane. Um, so how do you keep from getting so angry? You've got to remember that the people who are woke, the people who are making you angry, they're people that God loves. 
And here's something that will probably shake you up, Paul. He loves them as much as he loves you. How can that be? I'm serving God. uh, Well, he loves them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So instead of looking at those people as the enemy of all that you claim is good and right, think of them as the object of your ministry. And if you think about it, uh, Paul, we have a, 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 a... the best opportunity to share Jesus Christ. We have more lost people, and they are so far lost, so without hope, so despairing. Um, This is the greatest opportunity in my lifetime to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ. And probably, Paul, and I think this is the devil's trick. I think um, a lot of Christians who get just so irritated with this world and we, we get angry at people. He doesn't want us praying for them. He doesn't want us to love them. Instead, he wants us to hate them and he stirs the pot and, and, and that's just the enemy messing with you to keep you from being focused on what it is that God wants you to do. Two other things. One, those woke people, now I'm going to speak personally, Paul, because I don't know you. But again, I shared my testimony yesterday, uh, all three services. And I can tell you, those woke people, most of them, if not all of them, their sin isn't as bad as my sin against God before I got saved. So I think sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. Paul says that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And yet we do whenever we're looking at somebody else. Well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Third thing, Romans 5, 5 says God has poured out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit that he's given you. And Paul, what God wants you to do is have enough faith to make a withdrawal, a love withdrawal. That love is there. We don't have to fake it till we make it. You know, it's not one of those things where we can just dredge it up. I'm going to I'm going to love him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to love him. That's not what we're talking about. His love, not your love, Paul. His love has already been deposited into your heart. And what he's asking you to do is love people with the love that he's given you to love them with. He knows we're not capable of loving. The same thing is true. I said this yesterday in in the messages that our job as husbands is to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. If I love Paula with my crummy love, my inadequate love, that that's failure. God doesn't want me to love her with my love. God wants me to love her with his love that's been poured out into my heart. So, um, understand it's the devil pushing those buttons. Um, instead of being on social media, instead of having your nose in the news, uh, instead of being focused on politics and things that are going around, open your Bible and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you do that, then that love of God will spring forth and Jesus will be so pleased. This coming Sunday... Here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be starting in the, the book of First John. And he says it in those five chapters. He says it um, four times, maybe five times, um, that we can't say we love God who we haven't seen uh, when we hate our brother or our neighbor who we have seen. We can kid ourselves, oh, I love God. But God says, well, wait a minute, love me and love others before yourself. So, Paul, it's all about focus for you. You hang out with Jesus enough, and he'll have you looking at the people instead of at their sins. And what he'll say is, if you let me, Paul, I'll use you to win many of those people to faith in Jesus Christ. And then God can literally change their hearts. We can't, but he can, and that's what he wants to do. You've just got to decide if you're going to allow him to use you I can tell you, Paul, and everybody in the audience, God simply cannot use angry, bitter people. Nicole says, Would you discuss healing today, especially in light of James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15? Uh, let me read it, uh, Nicole, and then we'll, we'll uh, talk about it. Um, James says, is, James is the half-brother of the Lord. He says, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? 
Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, Nicole, the reason I read that is because the context here is really important. If we just take um, verses 14 and 15 by themselves, it sounds like if I'm sick, all I have to do is go to the elders, uh, be anointed with oil, and I'll be well. God God promised. Um, the, the, the illness that's being talked of here is the illness caused by sin. That's what he's talking about. Uh, I mean, all we have to do is look around rationally, and we see that sick people don't get healed. There's a lot of Christians who don't get healed. Uh, I've got a couple of ladies that I pray for every day in our church, and they live every day in pain. And I pray for them all the time. And you know what? God has given them a cross to bear, and they're bearing it beautifully. But their lives are really, really hard. I've got a man... Uh, that we love so much, and he's got a really, really bad back, and now he's got some other problems that are going on, and his life is just being overrun by pain. Well, God says those are burdens that they can bear. Now, probably all of the people that I'm talking about, and there's so many like them, would say, no, I can't bear this any longer. Um, God would say to them the same thing he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And he will be with them in their suffering. You know, from our perspective, the idea of suffering just, just it, should, it should be foreign to the believer. The problem is that we live in a fallen world. And these things continue to happen. And one day God is going to heal them all. Let me tell you, Nicole, one other story. Um, a, a woman in our church, uh, her name was Sue. I called her sis. She was like my younger sister. She loved God with all of her heart. Um, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she was really bold. I'm going to get well. You know, God told me I'm going to be well and all that. And and, and she fought cancer for, for, I think, three years. And, and then it just overran her body. And when I went to see her the day that she went to be with the Lord, she was at home. And she was really, really weak. And she said to me, she said... Um, um, I thought God was going to heal me. He said he was going to heal me. And I looked at her and I held her hand and I said, Sis, today he's going to do that. Today you're going to be healed. And she was. And she was. So physical healing's not promised in this passage. Let me say one thing. I think having the faith to come and ask for prayer when you're sick is important. But you also have to deal with the sin issue. And we pray for a lot of people. We anoint them with oil. Most of the time, those people don't get well. Sometimes they do, and they do miraculously. But this isn't a just come and be spotted with oil on your forehead and everything's going to be okay. That's not what James is saying. We're healed, but what we're healed of is a fatal disease of sin. Thank you, Nicole. Time for one more question, I think. This question is from Michael. Um, If God says he will never leave us, how can you say that sin separates us from God in fellowship. Well, Michael, I don't say that. The Bible says it over and over and over. Again, First John that we're starting this coming Sunday. Um, you know, Jesus is light. We have to walk in the light if we want to hang out with Jesus. So even when we sin, he doesn't leave us or forsake us. It just means we've walked away from him. Now, I think that's the, 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 the important picture for you to take away, Michael. Um, we're hanging out with Jesus. He's happy and we're happy. 
then we decide we're going to sin. We're tempted and we, we want to say yes to that sin. So basically what we're doing is saying, Jesus, you hang out here. I want to go in this private place and I'm going to do this horrible thing. And then later when I feel bad enough, I'm going to come out and meet you again. Well, the time that you walk away from him because you have chosen to sin, you're the one who's forsaken him. You're the one that's left him. Now, he will always take you back. First John 1, 9 says, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, but, but we have to come back with an honest heart. If we come back to Jesus and say, well, okay, Lord, I feel bad enough now. Sorry I did that. But if we're planning on doing it again, well, then we haven't really repented at all. And, and of course, that sin isn't forgiven. The fellowship is not restored. There's a lot of things we do that we know displease God. And we seem to think that God needs to be focused on us, being with us, even when we're sinning. And remember, he is so holy that the idea of being around sin is foreign to him. We must walk in the light because he is the light. And if we walk in darkness, if we commit sins willfully, we're only kidding ourselves if we say that we're really his. And I think that's the thing, Michael, that we have to understand. God will never leave us. He has been with me, even in those times when I didn't feel his presence, in those times when my sin caused that separation. I'm saying, well, God, where are you? He was always right there. He was always right there, and he'll be there for you as well. So you're still his, but his presence really has no practical value. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 Word. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.